So our next present presenter is Grant Ellsworth, and he is joining us from Weill Cornell Medical College, and he is going to be talking to us about screening for anal cancer, and this is very timely given all the recent results. So Grant, we'll turn it over to you. So uh, there's my disclosures. Uh, so objectives. Um, so my first objective is to convince you that anal cancer is an increasing problem in persons with HIV and turn you into anal cancer um, prevention crusaders. And the second is to really start talking about how we're going to accomplish kind of widespread screening for anal cancer precursors called high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions. I'm going to call them HCIL or high-grade throughout the rest of the presentation. And we'll go through how to screen for these lesions. Um, and then by the end of this presentation, you should be able to kind of quantify the expected reduction in anal cancer incidence if you implement um, these kind of screening and treatment for HCIL. Um, so here is a question. Uh, we're going to just do it quickly here. I am going to mention that um, probably, this is, Jeff alluded to this earlier, this is probably a bit poorly written question. <laughs> or maybe a combination of poorly written and um, a knowledge issue. But. Got a little tears for fears here going. All right. So um, this is good. We're going to talk about this. Um, and this is our second question. Start us off and get, repeat these again. And I really want to talk about this digital anal rectal exam a bit later as well. Okay. Great. All right, so um, we don't have, uh, you know, anal, the incidence rates for anal cancer data tends to lag a little bit. Um, so this study was published a number of years ago, and you can see it goes through 2012. Um, and as you can see, we kind of earlier in the uh, epidemic, there was this increasing rates of anal cancer that then just kind of plateaued. And, it, you know, there has been a kind of an observed decrease in the incident rates. However, it still remains pretty high. And a lot of this effect is to, thought to be secondary to effective ART and immune reconstitution. Um, I'm just going to superimpose here um, the cervical cancer rates historically prior to widespread screening programs in the U.S. Um, and the current rates. And as you can see, um, in persons with HIV, um, the rates of anal cancer are clearly much higher compared to the general population where anal cancer uh, remains a fairly rare diagnosis. 
And to put this into perspective with other cancers, um, this is a um, just a graph that was actually taken from the Anchor study team, um, used as a recruitment tool. If you look at anal cancer and HIV-positive men and men who have sex with men, um, the rates approximately uh, approximate the incident rates of other cancers, common cancers for which we screen, and exceed the rates of other cancers for which there is um, screening guidelines, such as colorectal cancer. Um, let's not forget HIV-positive women um, who uh, fall in about this range. Again, this isn't that much different than um, some of those other cancers for which we screen, and it's higher than uh, the current cervical cancer rates. Um, just to put this in tabular form, so overall we think that people, persons with HIV, the rates of anal cancer incidence are about 20 times higher than the general population. And the most at-risk group is men who have sex with men. We'll focus a lot on them today. Um, but again, we can't uh, ignore women with HIV. The group that we know a lot less about, unfortunately, is uh, HIV-negative men who have sex with men. Um, and one of the reasons that we think we know less about them, of course, is a lot of this data comes from insurance databases, and it's really hard to identify someone um, as having that risk factor just from an insurance database. And there is even more recent data that we're, we're starting to observe that maybe that the, these incident rates, rates have historically been underestimated. And so um, using uh, data from kind of the Denmark National Health Registry as well as the, their HIV cohort, that a person with um, AIN3 or the highest grade of HCL, um, their five-year risk for developing anal cancer is almost 14, is, a, is above 14%. It's pretty high. And then there uh, was a published about two months ago uh, some data from Medicare, uh, sorry, among Medicaid beneficiaries. Um, I'm not sharing that here because it's more about prevalence data. It's a little hard to compare to this incidence data, but it, that also showed that um, the rates are probably higher than we historically had thought. So this is kind of a confusing graph, but it, it does um, lay out uh, kind of the, the incidence rates among certain populations. So this is um, men have sex with men in this column, and um, this is HIV, um, and this is by age. So they, as, as you get older, the, the, the uh, risk of incidence is higher. Um, here's that HIV negative um, men who have sex with men group there. But these are other groups that we're increasingly thinking about screening. So again, HIV positive, men who don't have sex with men um, still have an increased risk. Um, and then overall, um, in women, again, that risk is also uh, higher there. One thing we don't think about is in the non-HIV population, um, for example, is women with uh, cervical high grade or uh, particular vulvar high grade, but uh, they probably have higher uh, rates of of anal cancer. And then a group that increasingly we're thinking about is organ transplant patients. Um, and the, the, rate, the um, rate of the incidence rate tends to increase um, 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 however longer you're out from your transplant. So this is a quick non-knowledge based question.
particularly as we start talking about implementing these types of things in clinics. So 43%, that actually is pretty good. Um, coming from New York, where we have uh, several large academic medical centers and a couple of several private clinics providing this service, uh, there's still a lot of um, community-based clinics that don't have access to HRA referral. All right, so let's talk about who to screen and when to screen. So. I think overall, you could say everybody with HIV, particularly men, men who have sex with men. Um, and then women with HIV, the rates of anal cancer in this population approximate the rates of cervical cancer prior to widespread screening. And when we look at um, cohorts of women um, in clinics or in specifically designed studies, you'll find HCIL in 26 to 46% of women that are screened. And these rates are high um, irrespective of sexual risk factors, such as a, a self-reported history of anal receptive sex. Um, there were some older kind of not accepted guidelines, you know, not widely accepted guidelines suggesting that, that you should only screen women um, that have that history. Uh, but uh, some colleagues at Mount Sinai and in the AMC have done studies to show that, that that's really not a factor, um, a risk factor for having um, prevalent high cell. HCL. Um, probably start at age 35 and older. This is based on a previous cost-effective analysis. Um, however, that this age is sort of coming into question, some um, evidence that, the, that, you know, cases might be uh, occurring at younger ages. Um, and also, uh, you know, this was the cutoff age for the anchor study, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, screen any symptomatic in individuals. By symptomatic, we talk about unexplained anal bleeding, itching, um, pain, um, palpable lesions, masses. And then consider uh, HIV negative men who've had sex with men. I kind of do this on a kind of shared decision-making basis um, in this population. Chronically immunosuppressed, such as solid organ transplant. And then I would talk about these women uh, that have common at cervical dysplasia. Um, there has been studies that show women that have cervical HPV 16 infection, also there's higher rates of anal HCL up to 30%. And a phrase that we hear commonly now these days, this should all be done regardless of vaccination status, as studies have shown that uh, HPV vaccination has a little effect on anal HCL in persons with HIV. This might not apply to people that were persons that were uh, vaccinated in, the, in adolescence, um, but we just don't have the data on that yet. So um, anal cytology or an anal pap smear, as it's commonly known, is uh, the go-to screening tool uh, for anal HCL. It has the most data um, behind it. Um, it tends to be a very uh, sensitive test, but not very spe specific, so it has fairly um, poor um, positive predictive value. In um, the general recommendations uh, for performing this, um, there is to do no prep, so no enemas, because you're going to just wash away the cellular material that you're trying to pick up. Um, and um, 
ask your uh, screenee if they've had any anal sex in the last 48 hours. Again, lubricant's going to um, inhibit the amount of cellular material you pick up on your uh, brush or swab. Uh, we use predominantly moistened polyester or Dacron swabs. Um, uh, Cyto brushes are okay. I find them to be a little bit more uncomfortable for the person that you're screening. And the, probably the most important thing for, for patient tolerance is to actually separate the anal verge. That's where most of the sensory nerves lie. Um, once the, the, the swab is in the canal, it tends to be quite a bit more um, comfortable. You insert to the rectal wall, that's about five centimeters, six centimeters, so a little bit of resistance. And then the important part to getting an adequate specimen is to do a spiral motion um, and I tend to count down from 10 um, very slowly and withdraw the swab. And then, um, then you need to agitate it in cytologic media such as thin prep. Uh, I tell people up to 30 seconds. One good way is to, if your eyesight's still good and mine's starting to go, is to look and see if you have little rafts of cellular material floating in your thin prep. That's a good indication that you've thoroughly agitated the swab and gotten that material into the fluid. Now, um, so who do you refer based on your results? So you send this off to your cytopathologist, they come back. If, if you get the result, no, uh, no evidence of intraepithelial lesion or malignancy, uh, that person actually has a very low risk of having anal HCL and could be followed um, serially in your clinic by yourself. But if you have any other result, including um, ASCUS or atypical cells of uncertain significance, those should be referred for HRA because we find even in those lowest grades of cytology, um, there's a lot of prevalent HCL. How about HPV screening um, like we do in uh, cervix? Well, <clears throat> it may not work because there's such a high prevalence of a HPV infection, particularly in this highest risk group, the MSM group, um, and up to 80 or 90%. So it may not be a very discriminatory test. Uh, we need to do a lot more research on that. We have looked at it in uh, women with HIV. Uh, this is data from AMC um, 083. Um, and uh, essentially it performed as well as cytology in terms of sensitivity, but it was more specific. So meaning if you screened women with uh, these two HPV tests, um, you, you would end up a lot uh, less, um, referring a lot less women for HRA that don't need it, if that makes any sense. Uh, we've also taken this data, and this has been done um, in other groups and in the cervix. If you take a, a HPV assay that gives you a bit more genotypic information um, and maybe some qualitative results in terms of cycle threshold, you can really bump up that sensitivity and again, and refer a smaller population of at-risk women for HRA without missing too many women that have prevalent age cell. Okay, so what I want to talk, I want to talk about digital anal rectal exam. Um, this has really fallen out of favor in terms of, you know, vir virtually everything else in this world, um, um, like prostate cancer screening. Um, but it really is probably important in this population, particularly if you're one of these clinics that don't have access to HRA, uh, because you could potentially pick up a early cancer. Um, and as you can see here from the NCI SEER data, that anal cancer survival is really based, uh, related to stage of diagnosis. 
Now, anecdotally, myself and many of my colleagues that work on these types of this type of research rarely diagnose an anal cancer that you weren't able to palpate. Um, and the way you do a digital anal rectal exam, this isn't just the glove lube up and get in and out. Uh, it's really a kind of a detailed exam. Take your time, go in slowly so you, can, uh, you don't make this sphincter spasm, and you really want to ex examine the entire circumference. circumference of the canal and distal rectum. And you do this by rotating your finger all the way around, switching positions because uh, your hand doesn't rotate 360 degrees, at least mine does not. Um, and then you also wanna look at the anal margin and the perianus, um, kind of five centimeters out, a lot of cancers do occur there as well. So, why, don't, why didn't we just go straight, take all the data from you know, the seven years of data we have for cervical cancer prevention, apply it to anal cancer? Because um, we know that treatment of cervical age still reduced the rates of cervical cancer in, uh, in women. Uh, well, there's a couple of problems. When we look at age cell in the anus, the lesions are large, they're spread out, they're multi, multifocal. And even if you do treat them, they, they, the lesions come back fairly frequently and new lesions appear. And you kind of end up in this feeling like you're just playing whack-a-mole with the lesions um, and trying to get rid of them. And you know, even if you do treat them, uh, we've got, we do have data that um, even after a year of aggressive treatment, these are patients that are being followed every three months and getting all their H-cell treated, about 30% of persons with HIV will still have H-cell after a year of treatment. And there are just a lot of patients that don't tolerate these procedures um, in, a, in a clinic environment, and some just have to have it done with anesthesia. So we really need to see, really want to design a study to see if this strategy of screening for anal H-cell was viable. So that was the ANCHOR study. Um, and the primary endpoint was time to anal cancer. And so the study population was uh, men and women over the age of 35, um, basically all comers were accepted. You were eligible for the study if you had anal H cell. There was a few other exclusionary things, mostly related to safety of the procedures and the population. Um, and so if you had H cell, you were randomized, underwent a stratified randomization. We'll talk about the stratification. And then you were followed either in the monitoring arm or the treatment arm um, every six months. And, um, and, and observed for cancer. Also collected all that say, uh, adverse event data related to the screening and uh, treatment. So these are the anchor sites um, scattered across the United States, including one here um, at Grady, uh, led by Lisa Flowers in Atlanta. And so the methodology of the study was to really follow everybody every, at least every six months. There were certain persons, if you felt like they were at risk of progressing to cancer, or um, you could follow elective, the, the clinicians could elect to follow them every three months. And in, regardless of the arm you were in, uh, we collected an anal cytology at every visit, some additional swabs uh, for future research, such as HPV testing um, and serum. Uh, every, then every participant underwent a digital re anal rectal exam and HRA. So the treatment arm, everybody got treated basically for all the high grade that you found at every visit. Sometimes between your six month visit windows that would require two or three additional visits depending on the extent of high grade or tolerance of procedure. 
And in this, this group, 14% um, or more were treated with more than one modality. The most common modality that we used for treating HCL was electrocautery using a hyfrication device or a bovi. Um, there were some early in the study, a lot of sites using infrared coagulation. Uh, again, some participants required treatment under anesthesia either to get an adequate exam or for tolerance. Um, and there was uh, some evaluation of 5-fluorouracil and topical amiquimod in the study. Um, the active monitoring arm uh, only had to be biopsied annually, um, but you could biopsy at any time if you were concerned about progression or incident cancer. So the screen population, the study screened 10,000 people, over 10,000 persons with HIV. Um, at screening, 52% were found to have HCL. Um, again, it was pretty higher in women um, and highest in uh, transgender persons at screen. Um, unfortunately, 17 individuals were diagnosed with anal cancer at their screening visit, um, with a pretty high incidence there, uh, higher than anything we have uh, had seen in uh, previous studies. Although this might have been an enriched population, noting that a lot of persons known to have HCL were uh, preferentially screened. So the random, this is the, the randomization, 4,400 uh, persons were randomized. Uh, median age is 51, both arms, uh, about 17 years out from their HIV diagnosis. Uh, predominantly male, we did uh, push to get a, a, a many females as we could in, about 16%, and we're quite proud that we had a, a fair number of transgender uh, participants in studying. Uh, in terms of the study population, um, largest population was African-Americans. Uh, followed by white, a fair number of Hispanics were represented in both arms. And then in terms of uh, CDC HIV risk groups, uh, which was collected at baseline, uh, overwhelmingly uh, the population, study population was homosexual, um, the risk uh, followed by heterosexual, and a fair number of IV drug user, uh, risk persons that acquired uh, HIV through IV drug use. Um, we had a fair number of smokers in the study of 30%. Um, and the study population in terms of HIV um, control was fairly well controlled. Um, and this is, we only collected this information at baseline. Um, so about 80 above 80% um, virologic suppression and reasonable um, CD4 counts above 600 median. So uh, the randomization was stratified by uh, their uh, Nader CD4 counts, um, as well as uh, the extent of H-cell involvement of the anus and perianus to make sure that um, we didn't kind of load one arm, preferentially bias this. So these are the results. Um, so uh, there was 30 cases, of, actually 32 cases of cancer, but we're only gonna talk about 30 of them because when we went back and looked at, um, at the at two cases in adjudication, they, they probably were present, um, actually present at the baseline visit. Um, <clears throat> so there were nine cases in the treatment arm, 21 in the active monitoring arm. And um, the cancer incidence in these two arms was actually much higher than was anticipated um, in our, the, the, study, the study's power calculations. 
um, just to kind of lead to this fact that we, we probably always have been underestimating this a little bit. Now, again, this population was enriched because they all had anal cancer precursors or H cell. Um, and the median fall-off was pretty similar in both arms. But overall, treatment of anal H cell um, resulted in a 57% reduction in anal cancer cases. And here you see the Kaplan-Meier curve, um, the active monitoring arm here, and the treatment arm here. Uh, and then this is the adverse event data. Again, we wanted to make sure this was a safe strategy and a well-tolerated strategy. In terms of serious events, um, there were um, a total of eight that were related to the study, seven in the treatment arm. Um, again, they were getting more interventions, um, but usually um, really not significant. So um, the DS, this, this analysis occurred at a pre-planned uh, uh, point. Um, so the DSMB recommended stopping the study for efficacy and to treat all the, the participants in the monitoring arm. So the study is currently, um, and this is a lot of work, trying to treat the other um, 2,200 patients that didn't get treatment already in the study that still may have high grade, um, and we're still following the, the treatment patients for any new incidents, incident H cell and treating it. So the conclusion of the study is treatment of anal H cell is a safe and effective strategy to reduce the incidence of anal cancer in persons with HIV. And um, recommendations to screen and treat anal H cell should be included in guidelines of standard of care. Um, so, but this comes to the point. So 43% of you said you had access to HRA. I think another 20% said they had limited access um, so we need to talk about that. There, there, the first point, though, is we, we need to improve treatment of anal H cell. There was nine um, cancer cases in the active monitoring arm. It was a little higher than, again, we kind of expected. So we need to improve the clinician's ability to identify and treat these lesions. Um, there's probably a role for novel or, or adjunctive therapies, such as therapeutic HPV vaccines uh, or other immune-modifying agents. Um, but I think the biggest elephant in the room is there is not widespread access to quality HRA. So there is a need for large scale uh, training to ramp up large scale training programs. There's probably also a huge role for um, better identifying patients at risk for progression to anal cancer. Because we don't need it. There's a lot of people that we end up screening with HRA that don't need it. Um, and that's just going to over again overburden uh, a scarce resource. Um, can anchors, the anchor results be extrapolated to other at-risk groups, such as all, solid organ transplant or women with a history of cervical dysplasia? There's probably there's a need based on these results, given some of these slightly different numbers, for updated cost-effective analyses. So what can be done? Um, so if you have access to HRA, I think the answer is pretty simple. You should screen patients and and with at least anal cytology and refer those with abnormal um, anal cytologies for HRA. If you don't have access to HRA, um, current guidelines don't recommend screening with cytology. I tend to agree with those because you're just going to create uh, a lot of anxiety in a patient by telling them to have a lesion that you can't do, it, potentially have a lesion that you, that you can't do anything about. 
But I think a, an approach for system-based symptom -based screening and using digital anal rectal exam should be performed because, again, as we talked about, anal cancer survival is related to, to you know, the size of you know, uh, time to diagnosis. I think the other thing, though, that can be done is to start developing HRA programs in your clinics. Um, so I, I have no monetary connection other than I'm a member of ENs. They do uh, offer a virtual, fully virtual HRA course. Um, it's available through their website. Uh, this was formerly offered by the ASCCP. Um, and it's, it's a well-designed course that will take you basically through this. Um, how to, to, to perform this procedure. The little, the nuances between endoscopy and, and colposcopy are, is a, they're pretty different procedures um, and um, it does take a, quite a while to become proficient in the procedure. Um, I think beyond a virtual course, there need to be more preceptorships and things like that established to, to, to really move this forward. Um, so here are my acknowledgments. Uh, I just really want to reach out to the Anchor AMC team, Joel Pileski, who led the study and presented these results at Cray this year. Um, Stephen Goldstone and Naomi Jay are kind of the persons that invented high-resolution anoscopy um, and were instrumental in training me. So that will take questions. So you can stay up there, I'll sit here. So um, one question from the audience is, could we have our patients do self-collected anal paps? Is that anything that's been looked at? It has been looked at. Um, it does work. Um, I, those those uh, studies have looked at that. So you probably need to do some validation, some validation studies. But um, I think if you are you should probably do it yourself um, because I don't it, it tends to be a fairly uncomfortable procedure um, those self-collected pats when they get a result it's pretty valid but you often end up with a they have a higher rate of unavailable results or acellular results and the anchor study had people greater than 35 what about younger populations or are there any are there particular subpopulations of younger people that we should consider screening yeah so um that's a good question i think you know the next round of analyses and i've kind of seen some of the preliminary analyses is who an anchor got cancer who developed cancer um, was it uncontrolled patients was it low cd4 counts um I don't think we have a great answer to that question, but um, uh, there's clearly, at least from that Medicare data that I didn't show, um, some evidence that persons under 40 are getting cancer at a higher rate than we previously thought. And if you don't have access to HRA, how often would you do DARE? Do you need to do it annually or I, more frequently? Yeah, I would do it whenever someone has symptoms, um, particularly if they're unexplained. So, you know, if someone comes in with um, discharge and you know, go to the last lecture if, it, if it's you know rect, uh, anal rectal chlamydia it's one thing but if they have persistent symptoms of pain or feeling like there's something in their anus those persons should be more frequently screened but generally we uh, the guidelines I cited there on that slide are, come from Ian's and they recommend at least once a year 
And you touched on this, but if you have a woman who has abnormal cervical pap, but she doesn't relate a history of receptive anal intercourse, should you consider screening her rectally also? I, I think if you know her HPV status, um, there is data um, in women with HPV 16 cervical infection, that if you screen those women with HRA, about 30% of them will have anal H cell. Now, um, are they, question is what is their risk for anal cancer there is some data um, that shows that they're higher risk but it's probably lower than the populations that we've been focusing on in anchor the it, persons with hiv i am seeing more of them in my practice though and do you think that with the anchor study there'll now be a change so that the hiv primary care guidelines and other guidelines will recommend anal pap smear and um, HRA? I, I think so, but I think it's going to come with that caveat of if you don't have access, this is again very controversial, but if you don't have access to HRA, doing a pap smear might, my opinion, might actually harm your patient because then you're just going to create anxiety that you have virtually nothing you can do about. That said, like if, if you have a patient you're suspected, suspecting that has some anal dysplasia that's putting them at risk for anal cancer, even if you, you send them to a colorectal spe specialist that doesn't do HRA, you, you still might be doing, um, you know, they might benefit from that, particularly if it ends in an early diagnosis of anal cancer. And if you have, you know, an abnormality, but the patient is not, you know, anxious to go get HRA, yeah. you know, because they've heard that maybe it hurts, maybe it's uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> um, does topical amiquimod offer anything or is there any other treatment you can give? Um, so topical amiquimod and or fi topical 5-fluorouracil, um, they're actually pretty hard to tolerate. Um, and I, I, outside of an actual, you know, a histologic biopsy proven anal H cell diagnosis, I probably wouldn't use them just because I, I don't, I think you just are going to be causing some, your patient to have symptoms that are going to have very little expected benefit, if that makes sense. Um, there are, you know, ways to, to get them through HRA. Um, often what I do with those patients is um, I, at least in our clinic, the providers encourage them to come meet me. We have a clinic visit. We talk about it. Um, add a, a little bit of Ativan goes a long way to get someone through the procedure, honestly. Um, and if they can't tolerate that, hopefully your HRA provider has access to, to uh, anesthesiologist or an area where they can do the procedure with sedation, um, which I know you do have at Emory with Lisa. so. And, you know, what characterizes the programs that are most successful at setting up and sustaining HRA? I mean, people that don't have access to it, what kind of things help convince health care administrators, et cetera, that this is something that we need to do? That's a, <laughs> a policy question. Wow, I didn't expect yeah. that one today. Um, I, I think it's the so I come in New York State has this kind of embodied in state um, sanctioned guidelines. So it's a little bit easier there. 
Um, particularly if we're trying to get commercial insurers to pay for these procedures, we can always just point to say, hey, this state already recommends it. So that, that's been a little bit easier. I, I mean, other states, it's a bit of a challenge, even California where, you know, UCSF is a massive site. They have issues with Medicaid paying for these procedures. Um, so I think national guidelines will go a long way to change that, um, getting payers interested in covering these services. Um, and so that would be the first step. I think the second, st I, I, I think you would also need to get a buy-in from your, your greater clinic providers. Um, if they're interested in referring for these services, you might be able to get um, management, as it were, to um, give you some attention. Okay, um, I think we've addressed all the questions from the audience and that last one that I threw in there, but <laughs> I threw that in there because sometimes we have guidelines, but there's no impetus to implement them, right? So first the guidelines have to come in most cases, but then you have to have some kind of lobbying and patients and providers really need to lobby that there needs to be some kind of financial uh, possible you know, impetus to actually implement the guidelines because it can be expensive to set a program up and train everybody. But clearly from the anchor study, it looks like it will be beneficial for the patients that have HCIL. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much, Grant. We really appreciate it. It was an excellent talk. Thank you.